Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. Today's episode is called Meeting Your Birth Mother as a Non-Binary Trans Adoptee. Yep, pretty descriptive. Basically, I'll be telling you about meeting my birth mother in person, which finally happened about three months ago. Before we get into the episode today, we have a special request for you, um, and this is around a very sensitive topic, um, and that's adoptee suicide. While I was previously living in Seoul um, from 2017 to 18, there were actually at least three suicides in the adoptee community living in Korea that we know of, all within the space of one year. And earlier this year, we lost another member of our community in the same way. So suicide and suicidality continues to be an issue amongst the transracial, transnational adoptee community. And when we lose someone, feelings of guilt, grief and hopelessness um, ripple throughout all of us. And yet we don't really talk about it. So we want to talk about it. We want to talk to professionals, and we also want to hear from you, our listeners. Uh, So we have three questions for you. One, has adoptee suicide impacted your life? Two, what would you most want to know from a specialist on adoptee suicidality or adoptee mental health in general? And three, what do you think the adult adoptee community needs in terms of mental health support? Please email your thoughts and responses to adoptedfeels at gmail.com or send us a private message via Instagram or Facebook. So we want to make a special episode on this important topic guided by our listeners. You can also email us voice recordings. You can just use your phone to record them. And then we can incorporate or include some of these recordings into the episode. And if you'd like us to anonymize your submission, please just let us know. So we welcome submissions from all of our listeners, but please note that we will prioritize the perspectives of adult, transracial, transnational adoptees. This is a really important conversation, and we want to conduct it delicately, thoughtfully, and respectfully. Thank you so much in advance for being part of it. Back in episode four, I talked about my birth family search. I also talked about how I wish there were more queer and trans resources and representation, and how grateful I was and am for adoptee writers like Andy Mara, who so generously share their experiences, and who I kept in my sort of inner corner, especially when preparing to meet my birth mother. I've also been very fortunate to have connected with some other queer and trans Korean adoptees in person and over the internet, and I honestly can't say how much those connections mean to me. As I mentioned back in episode four, I was worried that being trans and pursuing a relationship with birth family might be mutually exclusive things, like I'd have to choose one over the other, that only one of those lives or futures could be mine. Today I'm sharing a bit of an update, I guess. I'm going to talk about what it was like meeting my birth mother, which happened this past July, right before the ICA gathering in Seoul. I wanted to put together a nifty 10 things list, a format Hannah and I have used in previous episodes, but it didn't feel quite right for this topic. So instead, I'm going to run through the experience in three parts, pre, during, and post-meeting. Hannah's then going to jump back in, and we're going to have a chat. Before I get into it, I want to say that I think being queer and trans 
compounds, amplifies, and complicates an already complicated and difficult situation or experience, the experience of being an adoptee, and possibly more so in the case of being an adoptee searching for birth family and or being in reunion. In other words, what I want to convey are the additional complexities and or anxieties that arise when you are unexpected, when you do not look like what people expect you to look like based on your birth assigned sex or based on societal gender norms. At the same time, I don't think it is possible to disentangle the parts of my experience that relate to my being adopted and those that relate to my gender and presentation. If that sounds a bit confusing, well, that's because it feels confusing. In any case, I hope some of what I share resonates with you or that it's helpful in some small way. P.S. As we always say, we'd so love to hear from you. And if you feel like anything Hannah or I share resonates with or parallels your experience, please get in touch with us via email at adoptedfeels at gmail.com. Part 1. Pre-meeting. I've already shared the process I went through starting in 2015 to find my birth mother and birth father. I went to Korea in October 2017 in a last-ditch effort to find information, and I found out the day I flew back to Melbourne in November 2017 that Korean Adoption Services had finally found her. I sent her a letter and some photos, and we organized a DNA test to confirm I was her child. I finally met her in person one year and eight months later in July 2019. What I haven't shared is that when we first made contact via letter, I was about six months into a social transition and a slow medical transition. I'm non-binary and had decided to go on hormone replacement therapy. I sent her a recent photo along with baby photos, but I knew that the physical changes would become increasingly apparent over time. This also meant that while I was excited and really happy about those changes, that excitement was accompanied by mounting stress over whether that meant meeting my birth mother in person and having an ongoing relationship was even going to be possible. By the time of the meeting in July, I was almost two and a half years into my transition. I'd legally changed my name and was being regularly perceived or read as a guy. I didn't know how to explain this to my birth mother via Kekau Talk or Instant Messenger, and our communication was patchy and sparse anyway. I didn't want to scare her off or risk her calling off the meeting in the first place. So instead, I workshopped with my translator, who's also a good friend, how we could or would explain it to her in person if it was to come up. So it's the middle of July, and I'm down in Changwon, which is the city neighboring Masan, where I was born and where my maternal grandmother lives. And I'm with my partner and my translator. I was super, super nervous. I was worried up to the point when my birth mother walked through the door that she would cancel. I worried about every little detail. Would she like the gifts I brought? Were the gifts appropriate? Why did I choose to buy her Australian things that I don't even consume, like Tasmanian leatherwood honey and heart-shaped chocolates? And how does one explain what pawpaw cream even is? Is the cafe we were scheduled to meet at too difficult to find, too millennial pink? I tried to prepare myself for the prospect that she would take one look at me and not believe I'm her child, and or that she'd turn around and leave immediately, or worse, that she'd accept that I'm her child and disown me. Would she be disappointed in me? And could I be honest with her about the things I'd struggled with? Would I let her see traces of those struggles? I realize now in hindsight that I'd been really invested in hiding the more difficult parts of my history and my experience. 
as though the best interests of the child argument or rationale for adoption was the one I most wanted to be true, so that she might feel the decision was right, so that we could start our reunion off with reassurances and confirmations. This was the best thing, the right thing, even if he didn't have a choice. It turned out okay. I'm, I'm doing okay. Part 2, The Meeting you know when you undergo something and you think, I wish I could have really been present to that experience. Like, I wish I could have savored it and really been there, really been there for it. I've often felt like that. Like I experienced things from a distance. Meeting my birth mother and grandmother was no exception. I tried to stay in my body to really remain attentive to my surroundings, commit all the little details to memory. But it was pretty much a blur. My grandmother came up the stairs of the cafe first, carrying a bouquet of flowers. She was bent over, which I later learned was from an injury due to a car accident. My birth mother followed behind her. When my translator showed them into the room where I was waiting, my grandmother immediately went up to my partner, M, giving her the flowers, or trying to. The translator had to stop and correct her, gesturing toward me instead, saying that no, I was the adoptee. My partner joked afterward that this just demonstrates the power of gender. My grandmother going up to her, a white cis woman, instead of me, clearly Korean, but masculine. My grandmother was quite forward and direct. She grabbed my hands and kept patting them, and repeated that she was sorry and asked for forgiveness. Turns out she was the one who contacted Eastern and facilitated my adoption. She stared very intently at me, even after we sat down at the table. I could feel her looking me up and down, and once in a while she would reach over and touch my hand. I was stunned for most of the meeting, and particularly at the start. I didn't know what to say or how to behave. I could feel myself smiling and nodding a lot. I tried to come across cheerful and happy to be there. It's not that I wasn't happy to be there, but I could definitely feel myself performing. I didn't want them to feel I harbored any resentment or anger, and in fact I don't. I mostly felt a lot of tenderness toward them, and curiosity. I think the sadness came later. The term namja, meaning man or guy, came up numerous times at the start of our meeting. My grandmother was confused and kept using the term and looking at me. We talked about other things before it was clear there was no getting around the discussion of my gender presentation. We'd already talked about the physical similarities between my birth mother and I. We talked about Australia and my adoptive family, about my upbringing, schooling, and job. Finally, my translator was just like, maybe you should just talk to them about it. I think it'll be okay. And it went surprisingly well. When I explained that I've always been more drawn to boys' clothing, that I don't feel like a woman, I've never comfortably identified as a woman, my grandmother didn't seem too phased. Her reference point was Harisu, a famous Korean trans woman, model, singer, and actress. My translator explained, yeah, sort of like Harisu, but not quite. And my grandmother interrupted to say something like, Oh yeah, that's becoming more common in Korea nowadays. From that point on, it seemed like my grandmother and birth mother addressed me as a guy. For instance, my grandmother started to say that I was too skinny, which I'm absolutely sure she would not have said if she did perceive me as a girl. They also took more of an interest in my partner, asking what our relationship was, do we live together? In fact, they seemed to take more of an issue with my vegetarianism, which came up numerous times that afternoon. I learned more about my birth mother's and grandmother's circumstances around the time of my birth and adoption. My birth mother's younger sister is only four years older than me. 
Contrary to what my Eastern file says, my grandmother took me home and looked after me for a week before Eastern came to get me. My birth mother has two sons, my half-brothers, who I got to see a photo of. I learned that she changed her name in the hopes that it would bring her better fortune. When my birth mother went to the bathroom, my grandmother quickly turned to us to say that my birth mother has had a hard life. The meeting was exhilarating and I didn't want it to end. I wanted to know so much and I felt rude asking so many questions. I was worried they would cut the meeting short, even though I would have understood if they had, because it's an intense thing to go through. One thing I did notice and which became more apparent when I met my birth mother the second time was how difficult it was to make eye contact with her. What adoptee Joy Lieberthal Rowe shared in the side-by-side -side project short for the New York Times really resonated with me. She talked about how she barely looked at her birth mother and her birth mother barely looked at her during their first weekend together and how difficult that was. I just wanted to stare at my birth mother to take my time carefully examining her face and mannerisms, but it felt so awkward when we made eye contact. Both of us looked at the translator when communicating instead of each other. We met my birth mother for the second time two days later. This time my birth mother came alone. We only had a few hours together and we spent it at a mall in Changwon. It was during the second meeting that I started to feel my frustration at the language barrier. Perhaps it's obvious, but it's really difficult to connect when you're sitting around a table and can't really use small talk or make little jokes and when everything has to be run through a translator. And it's always easier and less intense to direct your questions and responses to the translator. I had to actively try and make eye contact with my birth mother, even though she couldn't understand what I was saying. I could also clearly see that my birth mother shared my difficulty with making eye contact, and that was challenging. She found it much easier, I think, to connect with my translator and my partner, and I found it hard not to be sad about that, even though I know the effort she was making with my partner was also her way of showing me affection, it was difficult not to feel hurt and kind of helpless. It was hard not to feel like I disappointed her by not being what she expected, the daughter she thought she had, who was given up without her knowledge and consultation. She made a comment which I thought was sweet, but I also found painful. She said something along the lines of, I thought I had a daughter. Then she turned to my partner and smiled saying, she can be like my daughter. In lots of ways, meeting her was wonderful. If she didn't accept my gender identity, she never really let it be known. She showed genuine warmth toward my partner and even insisted on buying us matching couples shirts before we said goodbye. In other ways, meeting her was hard. Prior to meeting in person, she was a name on a file, a name I struggled to imagine a concrete connection with. Seeing her, seeing how we look similar, hearing her voice, her laugh, seeing how she tends to my grandmother, seeing how she eats, seeing the way she holds herself, it all made me feel more concretely and acutely that I don't know her. I only had two meetings with her, and I wish I'd had more time. If anything, it's clear that what I've lost is time. Time spent with her. The time it takes to no longer be a stranger to each other. Part 3. Post-meeting. Saying goodbye was harder than I anticipated. In fact, if I've got any advice to give in this episode, it's this. Think about and plan for what happens after your first meeting with your birth family. Make sure you have support. It seems silly in hindsight, but I didn't even think about what it would be like to say goodbye. I was solely focused on the meeting itself, 
worrying about whether the meeting would actually happen, worrying about keeping my birth mother in the room if she freaked out when she saw me. I also didn't think about what it would be like to leave Changwon the next day and to then spend a few more weeks in Seoul, all the while feeling strange about being in Korea but not being closer to her, not trying to set up more times to see her. I was hopeful that our communication would improve after having met in person. Unfortunately, it hasn't. It is still really patchy, and she often doesn't respond to my messages. I still worry that being trans is just another barrier or another reason why she wouldn't be willing to further develop a relationship with me or stay in consistent contact. Another reason why she won't tell her sons or the rest of her family about me. The connection or thread between us still feels so tenuous, and I don't know how to get to know her or how she wants to get to know me, and if that is even what she wants. Chuseok was a bit difficult for me emotionally, and even more so when she didn't reply to my messages. I'm working with and trying to respect her time and space, and the situation that she's in, which I have little knowledge of. But it's still difficult, and it's very easy to feel wounded, and easy to feel worried that maybe this is all I'll get to know of her. That said, there's been something imperceptibly freeing, or like a subtle kind of ease, that I've noticed since meeting her. I think it has to do with finally meeting someone you're related to for the first time, being able to see the ways in which you resemble them. Like, to be able to see that for yourself, not to be told that you have a similar nose and eyes, but the thrill of being able to recognize it. It makes you make more sense to yourself, like it gives you coordinates, reference points, makes you properly see that you come from someone, that you share in something. In small ways that I'm only slowly coming to understand, I think meeting her has also made me more comfortable in my body, more at ease with being trans. And a final note, this experience has made it clear to me that part of the phenomenon of transnational adoption is its capacity to separate. It creates silos, it cuts us off, which is also how shame functions. I struggled to look at my birth mother and connect with her, and I don't know if that comes from some deep-seated shame in me, but I could also clearly see how she was separated and siloed, and there was a gulf or barrier between us. And even though I was super fortunate to have had this experience right before the ICA gathering, where I was surrounded by so many other adoptees, I also found myself holding back from sharing the ways in which my meeting was complicated or difficult at times. I didn't want to seem ungrateful for the experience that I had. I'm very conscious of the fact that many, many adoptees can't find information or track down birth family at all so I didn't feel comfortable sharing. And I think this is another instance of how adoption creates silences and silos among all members of the so-called adoption triad. Let's bring Hannah back on. <laughs> Our segues are also always so awkward. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, okay. Um... I just want to say, um, as usual, your writing is so beautiful and thank you for being so open um, and sharing so generously about your experience, not just, you know, with me, but, yeah, with everyone. Um, oh, shucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, really, really. Um, and also... It's been a real insight um, for me to, like, more specifically um, 
see some of the ways that being a trans adoptee yeah, compounds or amplifies, as you said, um, some of the some of the issues that all adoptees face in reunion. Yeah, it's. Mm-hmm. I think it's for for some of these things um, that trans factor really directly compounds that experience. I think. Mm. I I wanted something struck me um, at the beginning uh, when you said that you wondered before your reunion whether you would have to choose, in a sense, between, like, being trans and um, having a relationship with, with your birth mother. Like, um, I guess more specifically, being trans and, like, physically transitioning, I guess. Um, because I, you know, I don't want to discount the experiences of trans people that don't uh, undergo medical transition, but for me, knowing that that was something I wanted to do, like going on uh, HRT, um, that yeah created lots of concerns in my mind about how I would navigate that. First of all, in Australia and with my adoptive family and my my community here, but then how that would possibly translate um, to a potential uh, relationship with my birth family. Um, so yeah, in some ways it felt like a choice. It felt like one or the other and it felt like, um, like only, yeah, like only one would be possible. Is that because, um, this sounds so ignorant, but is that kind of a a daily, is that like a reality for you in, in other parts of your life as well? Or is it more that, um, I guess you just, you hadn't heard so many stories um, about reunion like from, from other trans adoptees. Does that make sense? The sense of like having to choose well, some like between I don't know if this answers your question but I guess like the two things like exploring my adoption and exploring my, my gender identity I guess they happened kind of gradually almost in like a similar time period so yeah the more that i'd like thought about trying to trace birth family um that was roughly around the same time or just before i started to really think about um my gender identity so yeah it just felt like like here are these two things that i'm excited about and then i want to explore um but would would, for instance, like going down the road and, and transitioning, would that mean that I would have to give up all all hope for finding and hopefully establishing a relationship with my birth family? Like, would that make that that part of my life impossible? Um, so, but I also didn't want to not transition. So it's a weird... It was a weird thing. In some ways, it did parallel a little bit um, my experience transitioning, but also figuring out how to tell my adoptive family because I didn't tell them immediately. So, it, yeah, it's this kind of weird experience where there's something that you started that you're so like excited about, but you feel like at the same time you can't share that openly with everyone and that um, you... You kind of have to 
not hide that part of your life, but um, you know that you're kind of running against the clock, right? You know that at a certain point, people are gonna notice and you're gonna have to, to tell them. Um, so yeah, that, that was a weird and kind of stressful time for me. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I don't, I, <laughs> I don't know if we'll end up having to cut that, just not because of what you said, but just because I don't think my, my question was clear. It just really struck me when you said this sense of like, maybe having to choose between these two big things. It's just, you know, it's just not something that I'd, that I'd ever had to compl- contemplate. Yeah. What also struck me about your piece, you talked about, you know, a, a fear of, of a second rejection in a way from, from your birth family, um, which is something, again, that I think of a, a lot of adoptees experience in reunion. Mm. But um, again, it's compounded in your case. And also this sense of like, this sense of like performing as like a happy adoptee whose life worked out and wondering like if, if we can be honest with our birth families about like the things that we've struggled with. Mm. Again, I wonder if that's like compounded in your case. I think being trans is just like an, another layer of an existing right foundation that that is what what all adoptees um i'm guessing maybe not everyone but um that yeah one they're scared of scared of being rejected for the second time and two that they feel they feel like i don't know you have to to reassure birth family that they made an okay choice or the right choice um and even though i think as adults you know like we know that's not our job and that's not the labor, the emotional labor we should have to perform. But when you're in the room, I found like, I absolutely performed that. I was, I was trying to be, trying to be cheerful and, and look, um, and look happy. Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think I'm a lot happier than I was like when I was younger. So that, I mean, that wasn't a lie. Um, but, but, yeah, I think that situation is such an extremely intense yeah. emotional one and it calls for uh, adoptees to behave and perform in certain ways. And I think it was also like, I didn't say this in um, the earlier section, but it was like really exhausting. Like <laughs> after meeting them, I was like completely wiped out, you know? And, and yeah. uh, you know, I think that's yeah. that's part of that, like trying to pay attention and try and like, pick up on every little detail and try and remember everything and because you know you've been waiting so long for this and you don't know if this is like the first and last time you're going to see them and then you're also doing all that emotional labor and and then all this adrenaline I think I just yeah I completely crashed after yeah Um, no absolutely I find even even sometimes visiting my birth family now I think it's partly just you know it's, it's partly trying to like listen to the Korean and you know and catch some of it (laughs) Um, but it's also I think this sense of yeah like uh, paying attention to everything and hoping that that I'm kind of not doing anything wrong oh yeah like I'm you know just generally acting in the right way or something yeah yeah 
So I think it's still, I mean, not to the same ex- extent as like uh, the, f- the first reunion or, you know, um, the first meetings, but it, I think it's still exhausting. Mm. <laughs> totally. Uh, yeah. 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 I, you know, and I think like the, the second, that, that other point you're making about the second rejection, um, that is probably compounded when you're, when you're trans or maybe even when you're queer, um, I mean, I personally have very, very little understanding of Korean attitudes towards uh, gender diversity or queer identities. Um, I have a little bit of exposure, but I feel like I I went in there as a you know foreigner, and you just don't really know what to expect. Like I was trying to make all these sorts of like educated guesses about how conservative they would be, you know, if they're Christian, if they if they picked um, Eastern social, um, maybe that meant that they were really religious. Like, would that affect their attitudes towards sexuality and gender? Probably. Um, Masan is, I think, politically reasonably conservative as well as a region. You know, like, you know, you try and, like, <laughs> you try and gather all this information and, and I guess, preempt the kinds of attitudes they're going to have. So I think it does it does bring in bring in sorry an added dimension of concern. Why do you think that is? I, I just want to go, you know, go back to that thing where we we feel this need to reassure our birth families that they made the right choice, that it was all for the best. Yeah. Why do you think that is exactly? I guess it's like, oh, is, do you think it's just we want a relationship with, with, our, with our families, so we just want to, like, smooth over the past? And, um, yeah, even if we've significantly struggled at certain points in our lives, we, mm. we don't necessarily talk about it, especially not at the beginning. And what is... Yeah. It? I mean, I think it's partly strategic, you know? Yeah, like you... You want it to be the first of hopefully many meetings. You still, at least for me, you know, I had so many question marks and still do about about my birth father, about um, you know my birth mother's circumstances, and my Eastern file isn't going to tell me anything about that. And I know that in order to get more information, I have to have an ongoing relationship. So yeah, I think part of it is strategic. Yeah. Um, but I also think that emotionally, we've probably been trained to be acutely aware of our social environments and behave in the ways that are expected yeah. and yeah. Um, look after the feelings of the people around us. Um, I mean, I think I did have a moment of clarity, like when my when my birth when my grandmother, sorry, um, came up to me at the start and just kept saying, you know, forgive me and I'm sorry. I, I actually never told her that I forgave her because I was like, well, I actually just, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I was like, you know, trying to reassure her in other ways, but I never flat out said, oh, don't worry, it's okay. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I think I drew, I drew a little bit of a line, but like, you know, yeah. in general, I was very much trying to, trying to show them that, yeah, you know, like I was raised well, and yeah, you know, I've come, I have a great family, and life in Australia is good, and you yeah. know, um, I mean, in regards to your grandmother, it's like 
she just told you, I mean, you were just finding out, right, that it was actually her decision and it's like you kind of have to take stock of that before you can say to someone meaningfully, I forgive you, right? I also just, I also don't know what, I don't know what would have to, I mean, this is going to make me sound incredibly resentful, but I, I don't really know what would have to happen for me to say I forgive you because... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, in some ways, I don't think she had a real choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see that it's clearly... I mean, it's obvious that that's not, that's not a choice that you can leave behind you. I don't know if I, you know, if I need to see more outpouring of grief for me to forgive her. I don't think it's that, you know. Yeah. I, I just... Yeah, it happened, and now I want... I want to be able to have a relationship in the future, and I yeah. guess that that's that's my main focus. Maybe that means forgiveness, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're kind of, we're almost getting onto, like, a whole nother topic. It's it's maybe something we could, we could explore further, I think it's... I don't think you necessarily have to fully forgive. I don't, maybe this makes me sound resentful as well, but in order to have a relationship... Anyway, I'm, and I think if forgiveness is kind of like premature, which is what mm. I think I did, I don't think it's it's actually genuine. I think in a weird way you have to like take stock of everything mm. <laughs> that's, that's happened before you grant some kind of, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit superficial otherwise. Um, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but the most poignant part of what you said for me was when your, I guess your grandmother first went up to your partner, um, (laughs) (laughs) maybe I was thinking, maybe she thought like you'd really, really been whitewashed in Australia. (laughs) But then... (laughs) But then also how... Like, just observing your your birth mother connecting, like, seemingly more easily with your partner and saying, like, oh, she can be like my daughter. Mm. I mean, I think, I, I you know, anyone would, <laughs> anyone would feel um, wounded by that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it was difficult. It was... I mean, it was really a battle, like, right, between, like, the way that I was rationally understanding the situation and what she was doing, which was I, I could very clearly see that she was doing it as a way of connecting with me. And in some ways, like, her acceptance and warmth from my partner was, trans- like, kind of signified, I guess, like, for me at least, that she accepted, one, our relationship, and two... And I, I think my gender. So I don't mean I don't know if she sees me as like heterosexual. I've I have no idea, but um, but I could see that 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 was her way of showing acceptance or affection. But on an emotional level, even though I knew rationally that's what she was doing, and it was very sweet, um, it still kind of stung a little bit. Um, the rash, yeah, the rational part of me knows that like. Even if I wasn't trans, like, maybe I wasn't the daughter she would have wanted. Anyway, like, I have no idea, right? But um, I think the gender stuff just created an additional layer where you, you don't know how to interpret things. And 
yeah, something that she says can be taken as both quite a quite a lovely gesture of acceptance, yet also really kind of feel hurtful at the same time. And I don't think she she would have realized that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's. I mean, it it sounded like to me maybe she was also um, processing some things out loud, and mm. yeah. Not maybe realizing the potential impact, yeah. Totally. I mean, the the really, like, I talked about it a bit, but I think, like, time is such a big theme, you know? Like, I've had years to think about my gender, and I don't really know, but I, I really doubt that she's thought a lot about trans people, and then all of a sudden... <laughs> She was like, oh my god, my child's trans, you know, like, and that was just kind of like, um, and so I think, you know, the expectations we have when we've had a lot of space and time to think about things, lots of conversations, you know, about being trans or about being adopted, and then you meet a person who, who hasn't, you know, in my birth mother's case, I think one only one other person in the world knows about me, and that's her mother. And, you know, how many conversations have I been able to have with other adoptees about what it's like to be adopted? How many conversations could she have ever had about being a birth mother? You know, like, she lives, she lives a very silenced life, whereas I have the ability to, to explore things with others, you know, which is a privilege. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, tr- I'm also trying to be trying to be really mindful and respectful of that too that we we are really at different paces and we've had very different types of exposure to different things so i want to make room for that and i want to have space for that but there is also yeah the like the sort of like inner emotional part of me that still still i guess reacted you know um when i met her um yeah I guess, um, you know, and I've, I've talked about this too, I guess I, sometimes directly like with our birth mothers, there um, is like, you know, shame and guilt and, and baggage there on both sides, as well as often, you know, this like deep yearning to connect with each other. Mm. But um, but yeah, because of all that, um, those um, emotional obstacles, I guess, it can be like hardest to like connect with that person. Mm. And I, I've also like observed my birth mother connecting with other people, like or you know connecting with other like cousins and, and things in our birth family, and or like my Korean brother's wife, who's like my age. Mm. Yeah. Um, so and, and I'm like, oh well, you know, you you can you do connect with people, like you are, <laughs> you do have that kind of like you know warmth and um, yeah. easy at ease with other people. But not with you. Yeah, so it's like, oh, but you know, and I can understand why. Mm. I, I very much understand why, rationally. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think I also found it really validating um, that that clip from the side by side documentary. Yeah, where where Joy talks about um, yeah some of the challenges with her birth mother mm. because it's like I I feel like I hadn't exactly heard an adoptee talk about that that specifically out loud or something Mm. yeah that yeah that really uh i know we were sitting together watching that um yeah (laughs) but that really struck i mean that whole thing struck lots of chords with me but but that i felt like yeah i think i told you in a previous episode but that i feel like i needed to hear that 
you know, that was only like maybe a week and a half after meeting my birth mother. So that, that, was, a, that was special. I think something else that, um, that I really felt when I was first reuniting is like, yeah, this weird like dual experience of like simultaneous closeness and distance and like loss and gain mm. in you, you know um and, and sometimes i i wonder um i don't know it just it just makes you yeah it does make you acutely aware of like of like what is potentially like permanently severed through trans, transnational transracial adoption mm. um um and i wonder i wonder what it takes to no longer to bridge that gap you know, I, I wonder what can be bridged and, and what, you know, I, I have uh, friends who have been reunited for a lot longer than I have and that, act, that can speak Korean pretty well. Mm. And, you know, sometimes they've said things like, even if I could speak Korean fluently, I feel that there would still be a, diff- a, a distance, Yeah. you know. I, I wouldn't be just like another one of my siblings or... Um, I don't know. I mean, that's, that sounds a bit depressing, but... Well, um, I think you're right. I think that's that's the hard truth of, you know, if I were to have an ongoing relationship with, with my birth mother, it would have to be... It would have to be something that gets negotiated, I think, and will probably have lots of ups and downs um, and closeness and distance because... Yeah, I mean, it couldn't possibly... She couldn't possibly treat me like one of her other sons or whatever. Um, we don't have that history and we're never going to be able to recuperate that time. So, yeah, it'll just have to be its own thing. I don't know. I guess for me, it's just mm-hmm. like, but I want there mm-hmm. to be a thing. You know, I don't know what that yeah. looks like, but, yeah. like, I want, I want... I still want to know more about her. I still want to, like, spend time with her and get to know her and... Being back in Australia also feels like I've put that on hold, and that's a bit frustrating because, yeah, like I mentioned, I thought that things would be different in terms of her communicating with me after we'd met in person, but it's still as patchy as before. So I don't really know how to get get mm. through that or get past that. I don't know if I had anything else. There's another thing that I kind of wanted to mention. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, but couldn't really figure out how to add it to the to the little blurb. But um, I think one of the other interesting and kind of unexpected difficulties um, being trans was also the whole DNA thing. So, like when I lodged my DNA with the police, this was like in 2017. Um, back then, you know, I hadn't, I was on HRT, but I hadn't changed any of my documents. Um, they were still, like, the police were still a bit confused, um, even back then, when they were like, but where's the adoptee? And the translator was like, this is the, pointed to me, oh, that's the adoptee. And then the police got, like, so embarrassed and, could, like, because I think they're like, oh no, we thought, we thought she was a man. Um, anyways, but, I couldn't imagine doing that now, and I think, like, it's scary enough to go to, like, a police department, explain your story, whatever, lodge your DNA, and to have to do that and then be like, oh, yeah, even though it says I was, you know, assigned female at birth, 
now I look like that, you know, like that I can definitely see how that would create just another barrier in terms of accessing that police service. And the other interesting thing that I kind of had to navigate was online DNA sites. So when I lodged my DNA with like 325 camera with 23andMe, I had to specifically ask them for my public profile to be listed as male. And that was purely because if I matched with anyone, I would want to be able to out myself in my own time. Right. As opposed to them being able to see, well, this person's listed as female, but they look like this, right? And actually those services are able to do that. You just have to email them and they will respect your your gender identity on the site. Um, of course, if there are any, like, if you have family relatives that are genealogists and actually know what the, like, haplo blah blah blahs are, they'll, like, be able to tell quite quickly that you were not assigned the gender that you appear as. Right. But in terms of, like, most lay people wouldn't, um, wouldn't be able to, to judge that. Um, so that was another interesting, I guess, trans-related thing that I came across. Yeah. Um, and in my specific situation, like, I found out my birth father never knew about me so um he knew my mom was pregnant but when she left him when the relationship oh. broke down um she told him she had a miscarriage so she's convinced he doesn't uh, know okay. and so in that case i mean the dna testing anyway was to find relations on his side of the family so i was like well if he doesn't know about me at all then you know what's the point of outing myself at the start so yeah yeah, so that's I think another another sort of additional thing to worry about, I guess, when you're when you're trans and also an adoptee trying to go through those channels which are already stressful. Um, yes, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a bit of a downer of a uh <laughs> segment. No, I think I'm hoping it will really be valuable. Like there's just not enough out there right about like queer and trans adoptees in reunion i just think you you've you've like shared so openly i'm really i'm like a little bit scared for me <laughs> i'm like blown away and kind of touched no <laughs> yeah so thank you thank you yeah um as usual yeah we'd love to hear from you Oh, I think you already said that. Just email us anytime at adoptedfeels at gmail.com. Yeah, you can follow us on um, Facebook and Instagram at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. And you can also review us on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. We currently have one very glowing review and um, we welcome more. <laughs> Thank you, Steph80. Or is it Chef 80? Like S-H-E-F. Or Chef 80. Anyway, thank you. And also, um, if any of you have, like, suggestions for things that you would like us to talk about or people that you'd like us to try and talk to, um, yeah, we're always open to that. Um, some of you have already made some suggestions and, yeah, we're definitely taking all of those on board and um, figuring out how we can incorporate them into future episodes yeah thanks keep the recommendations coming <laughs> so at the moment um i have this like part-time job running this 
English reading and writing program at a small children's library. <gasps> so Cute. in Seoul, there are a lot of like these very small children's libraries. They're literally called like like the name of the area, then small children's library, oh. right? <laughs> anyway, just <laughs> um, how small are the children? Oh, the the library itself is very small. Uh, and the children are um, the the <laughs> well the kids in my program are generally like nine to twelve years old. It's a really nice age. So it's like they haven't quite most of them haven't quite hit puberty yet. Um, okay. But they're also like not like you know like unruly like really little kids. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they're not kind of like really. Squirmy, or uh-huh. you know, <laughs> is that is that the, like the is that like the nice window of childhood? I think so. I think so. I mean, I think some people <laughs> really like working with like really young kids because maybe they're more cute, or uh-huh. I don't know. I, anyway, but um, so I think it sometimes it's like an interesting insight into Korean culture, right? Working yeah. with Korean kids, or or working with like Korean adults, right? Just yeah. Um, I thought it was funny. Um, so the kids have to like, like words that they don't know, like new vocabulary. Um, they, they have to try and make a sentence, like a really simple sentence. And so one of the little girls, she had, um, her, she had this word octopus and I was like, oh, you can say like the octopus, uh, lives in the ocean or the octopus has eight legs and and so I said like the octopus and I'm waiting for her response and she says is delicious <laughs> and I thought that was just very a very specifically Korean Korean kid response like you know, <laughs> how cute anyway and I was like yes yeah. yes that's correct <laughs> um and then another kid, I was like, it was a Friday. I was like, so what are you going to do on the weekend? And he said, oh, I'm going to do, like, do some gaming. Like, and I'm like, okay. And I said, like, alone or with a friend? And he said, alone. And I said, oh, um, what, what game? And he said, Minecraft. You know Minecraft, right? Uh-huh. And, um, and I was like, oh, are you good at that? And then... He just, like, turns to me and, like, he looks me, like, directly in the eye and he's like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, I do not doubt it. <laughs> he was just very confident, like, like yes, I'm, I'm good at Minecraft. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> it was really cute. I love how serious some kids can be. Yeah, some of them have really, yeah, quirky little personalities. I yeah. think it's cute. Yeah, I like that age. It's, like, it's definitely, like... A small adult, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't been around any cute kids that say cute things, so I don't have much to add to that conversation. <laughs> oh, I'm like really relieved by this job, though, because um, because I don't have to do any classroom management, and like some. So I I'm relieved that I actually find some of these kids cute, because I was worried that maybe I just didn't like kids. <laughs> <laughs> No, that, that, that's a good, that's a good realization. <laughs>